a lot of times when we talk about our Christian life and trying to to live for Jesus as we should, we we focus on the idea of maybe do better or don't sin, and, and that seems to be the area that we that's what we say to ourselves. That's what we tell others: do better, just try harder, don't sin. And in the end, that that actually just leads to failure and frustration. But it leads to failure because the reality is on our own we can't do better. I mean, the human will is strong and there's a lot of things that we can do just by nature, virtue of our will. The sinful nature is stronger than our will. More often than not, when we just try to to do better and knuckle our sin under through self-control and self-determination, we're like a person who goes on a starvation diet. We do well for a, a bit. But then the day comes and we, the dam breaks, so to speak, and we, we not only indulge, but we overindulge and we end up in worse shape than we were to begin with. Um, the, another reason that it fails is because it's, it's not enough to just stop doing or to take something out of our lives. Right? We have to replace it with something else. Right? You, you can't, there's not a, no vacuum can exist in there. So if I, I have a, a problem with anger and violence and I go out and I get liquored up and I get into fist fights and I'm going to stop. Well, I can't just stop because now I've got time on my hands, don't I? The time that I would normally be out getting liquored up and fighting with people, there's, it's just there. So what do I do? I have to find something else to do. And you can do that with, with anything. If, I, if I'm a gossip... Well, I can't just not gossip because I'm going to talk. So I'm going to have to either replace that with something. I'm going to have to replace what I say or who I talk to. If I look at internet porn, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not going to look at internet porn. What are you now going to do with that time? You're going to have to take away the bad, but you have to replace it with something good. And when you don't, you fail. This is the principle of replacement. And it is one of the keys to living like Jesus. We're going to look at how to do that this morning. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 22. It should be page 897 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I want you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 4, 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation and the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, nor let the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use and edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed in the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The title of the message this morning is Living Differently. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we thank you that the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is not do better 
or sinless. We thank you, Lord, that the message is that we can be redeemed through grace in Jesus Christ and that there is power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to take away what's bad to put on and start doing what you would have us to do. Lord, we all know what it is to struggle with sin. We all know what it is to try to tell ourselves we're going to do better and we're going to sin less. Today, use this passage of Scripture and change the way that we think. Truly, if we live with a mindset of doing better and sinning less, we will fail and we will be frustrated and discouraged and defeated all of our lives. Help us to see that through Your Word there is a better way. Father, You have shown us what it is that we are to do. You have shown us how to see our, our lives changed and our souls transformed. We want to be like Jesus, Lord. We want to think the way that He thought. We want to act the way that He acted. So today, take this Word and use it like a sword. And You convict us where we need convicting. You encourage us where we need encouraging. You strengthen us where we need, where we need strengthening. You equip us where we need equipping. Lord, You just do what only You can do in our hearts and in our lives today. We need You, God. Fill me with Your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say only what you once said. Nothing more, nothing less. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now we see the principle of replacement in this passage. Right at verse 22, we're told to, to put off the old man. And then in verse 24, we're told to, to put on the new man. Right now, notice that we're told that the old man is corrupt according to deceitful lust. And, and if I'm understanding the wording right, the corrupt the word that's translated as corrupt in my King James Bible is a, I don't know what it is, it's like a continuing tense. It, it means, it's not just that it's bad, but it's getting worse. Right? It's the picture that our sinful nature, that while our sinful nature is, it is bad. It's not just staying bad. It is getting worse and worse as time goes on. Right? Our sinful habits, our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions, they're not just going to go away. And they're not just going to get better. And we're not going to be able to just sit passively by and one day get up and be like Jesus in our lives. We are going to have to be very intentional. We are going to have to work very hard against it. Or what we'll find is, over time, they get worse. Because the more we live with our corrupt nature, the more we just let it run, the stronger it gets, the more that it spreads, the worse that it gets. And so the worse that we live. And we're to put them off because our minds are being renewed. Verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. As we live in our relationship with Jesus, we study His Word, we're led by the Spirit, our minds are being renewed. And we begin to see things the way that Jesus sees them. We see our sinful habits as sinful and wrong. Right? We, we begin to say, well, that's not just who I am. I, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. I don't have to live this way any longer. We see our sinful thoughts as that they are sinful. Right? It's not okay. It's not acceptable. Just because the world says it is, I now see that Jesus says that it's not. And we see that our sinful actions, they're not something that we joke about. They're not something that we 
bragged about. They're something that we become ashamed of because they are wicked and they are wrong. And they're very different than what Jesus would have for us to live. And so as we see, as we think as Jesus thinks, we see as Jesus sees, we begin to put these things off. We want them gone from our life. We want to put off the old man and its corruption. And we want to put on the new man. Now, because that's what we have to do. It's not enough just to, to put off the old. Verse 24, we have to put on the new man. Now, the way we can tell, one of the ways we can tell the difference between the old and the new, the old is corrupt according to deceitful lust, right? So the, the old is like the world that's, not, that, that's apart from Christ. The new, though, is made after God. It's like Jesus. It's created in, in righteousness and true holiness. So how do I know if I'm putting on the new? Well, is it holy? Is it righteous? Is it true? Is it like Jesus or is it like the world? We can look at that and we can see. And this new way of life, this new in us, it is being created by God and yet there's a part that we have to play. But we don't transform ourselves. God transforms us. But we do have to replace the old with the new. And this doesn't happen accidentally. And it doesn't happen passively. We have to be aggressive and intentional if we're going to see it happen. Right? So disciples of Jesus must be intentional to live like Jesus. And that's a huge thing. No one will ever accidentally live like Jesus. No one will ever passively live like Jesus. Gosh, no one will even naturally live like Jesus. There must be intentional effort in our part to put off the old and to put on the new. Now, Paul is great in that Paul is a very practical God. And he doesn't just say, put off the old that's corrupt and put on the new that's holy. He gives us five ways that we can do this. Number one, replace lies with the truth. Right, so notice in verse 25, wherefore. Right, the, the wherefore is connected back to verse 24. Since we have put off the old and we are putting on the new, then we must put off part of the old which is lying. Right? We are to put away lying from ourselves. Now, in our day, we don't often see much wrong with lying. Right? And, and, and I know this may surprise you, I'm going to say this, but you may have noticed we're in a political season right now. And lying is such a part of our culture, we don't even really expect the politicians to do what they say they're going to do. Not really. It is just understood. That they're going to make all kinds of crazy promises. And then not deliver. But it's not just politicians. Is it? I mean. We're just a, a culture. Of liars. Lying is. Normal. In our world. Lying is. Accepted in our world. It is so common, so normal, so accepted that most people really don't even see anything wrong with it. 
It's just not that big of a deal. But when you come to Scripture, what we find is God has a vastly different opinion about lying than our culture has. Look look at what Jesus said. You're of your father, the devil. Now, that's a harsh statement, right? I mean, if I were to come to you and say, "You're you're just like your dad, Satan, you would get mad at me. You would think, wow, what a harsh, judgmental statement, you jerk. And yet that's what Jesus, Jesus said. And they do the lust of their father. He was a murderer and abode not in the truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So why does God take such a negative view of lying? Why does he see lying as something that is a big deal? Because that is the language of Satan. When we lie, we are not speaking the language of God our Father. When we lie, we are, we are not living in conformity to the character of God our Father. When we lie, we are being like the devil and testifying. He is our Father. That's a hard statement. But that's what he says. He says that Satan is a, a liar from the beginning. Where do, we, where do we first meet Satan? In the beginning, right? Just barely into God's created world and His created people and things are going peacefully. And Satan comes and he tempts Eve and Adam to to eat of the fruit that God had said they should not eat from it. And they responded right at first. No, no, God has said we, we can't eat it or touch it. And the day that we do, we will surely die. What does Satan say? Oh, you're right. No, he says... He'll not surely die. He lies right from the get-go. So our first picture of Satan is that of a liar seeking to destroy another with his lies. So when we lie, we're not like God. We're like Satan. God takes lying very, very seriously. So, because lying is a part of our old nature, we are to to put it off, put away lying, but then we replace it. Speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So rather than lying, we're to speak the truth with our neighbor because we're all members of one another. We, We need each other. And we need one another for life. And we need one another for health. And we need one another for spiritual benefit and for accountability. And for us to, to need each other in this way, there has to be unity. And with unity, there has to be trust. And what is the, the number one thing that will destroy trust? Lies. Think about people who've lied to you often in your life. Do you trust them? No. How many relationships do you know of that have been broken or hindered because of lying to one another? How many marriages? Just think about marriage. How many marriages end in divorce over things that started with lying? What would happen in a church if we all just lied to one another all the time? What happens... If you start lying to your children, if your children start lying to you, 
What does that do to the unity, to the relationship that you have with one another? It ruptures it, doesn't it? It causes problems. And so because we are one body, because we are the body of Christ, we are to be truthful. We don't want to disrupt the unity. We don't want to create conflicts. We don't want to destroy trust. We don't want to tear down relationship. We don't want to be the cause of of open warfare and strife in the church because of our lives. So we, we tell the truth one to another. We're truthful in our lives. But not just that. Think about truth in relation to God. Right? Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God's Word is truth, John 17, 17. Now the word that's used in in John 17, 17 for truth, it it means that, that God's Word, really the picture is that God's Word is not true because it conforms to a higher level of truth, but that God's Word is the truth that anything else that's true must conform to. So that's what scriptures, that's what Jesus says about scripture. It is truth, ultimate truth. And in the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Think about this in relation to lying. When we lie, when we are not truthful, we are not living a life that is consistent with the Savior who bought us with his blood. When we lie, when we are untruthful, we are not following the book God has given us that is meant to be the foundation of our lives. And when we lie, when we are untruthful, we are not following the Spirit that indwells us and seeks to lead us. For truly, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of truth, will not lead us to lie. So we must replace lying with the truth. That doesn't happen accidentally. And that doesn't happen automatically we have to be very intentional about replacing lies with the truth so we can live like Jesus replace lies with the truth and replace anger with self-control and forgiveness this one was was hard for me for a variety of reasons one of which is anger issues are things I have struggled with at various times in my life and when they break out, they break out in ugly, terrible ways. I, was, I, t- I texted Kelly as I was going through this last night and said, well, I'm really convicted by the message. I don't want to preach it now. Um, but the reality is this was something that spoke directly to me in painful ways. So we're to replace anger with self-control and forgiveness. Now, anger is very important in this passage because it's mentioned multiple times. Verse 26, be angry and, and sin not and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And then if you look at verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now that also is, all of those things are forms of anger. Um, So we are to put off the old man with its anger and all of its various forms. So let's just look at the various forms that he mentions in verse 31. Bitterness. Bitterness is a a, a sort of a spirit that refuses reconciliation. If I'm bitter at you, maybe because of something that you've done. But no matter how sorry you are, how much you want to be forgiven, I'm not going to. I'm done with you. I'm over you. That's bitterness. But rage. Bitterness and, and wrath. Wrath is outbursts of anger. Um, it could be a quick temper. 
It could also be this, this continual and uncontrolled behavior. But it could also be something that just erupts. Right? Not necessarily a quick temper, but once it erupts, it erupts violently and terribly. Um, anger, what he says, anger, there's just a, a continuous attitude of angry that's bottled up. This would be kind of like what's under the surface. Uh, and, and maybe you know what this is like, or maybe you know someone, but they are always almost angry. Have you ever felt that way? Where you can just feel right there underneath the surface. All it's going to take is the right, poke the bear the right way, and there's going to be an explosion. And it's just kind of always there. Clamor is uh, loud statements of angry people determined to make sure everyone knows how they feel. Right, so clamor isn't necessarily physically violent, but it is verbally violent. It, it is more characterized by loud than anything else. But when they are angry, they are loud, and they want everyone to know how mad they are. That's clamor. Evil speaking would be like slanderous words intended to destroy another person's reputation. It could be through lying, it could be through gossip, it could be through spreading rumors, telling secrets, anything along those lines. And then malice. Malice is words or actions taken with the intention of harming another. Right? It could be intending to harm them physically, but it doesn't have to be. It could also be to harm them, harm their reputation. It could also be to harm their emotional well-being, to hurt their feelings. Um, the goal of malicious words and actions is always to cause harm or pain. Uh, so all of these things are, are things we are told to put off. All of these things are part of the anger that we are supposed to put off. Now, I like verse 26, and we'll talk about it more in a second, the very first part. Be angry and sin not. Right? It doesn't say, don't be angry. Again, we'll talk about that more in just a second. But it says, when you get angry, don't let that anger control you. Don't let that anger cause you to sin. Now, how many of us would say, there have been times in my life when in my anger, I sinned. I did unchrist-like things because I was angry. Now, anger in and of itself is not a sin. Right? Anger is an emotion God has given us. God Himself gets angry. Jesus got angry. But in our anger, we can sin. Uh, it is possible even to be angry for the right reasons and yet act in sinful ways. But I mean, again, it, it's, it is right to get angry about some things. Right? The righteous anger disciples of Jesus should have over sin. That, that's a real thing. Sin destroying people. Sin in our own lives. There should be a righteous anger over the destruction that sin brings in the world. When we see someone blaspheme our Lord and mock Him, it is a righteous thing for us to feel indignation over that. For them to mock the Savior who died on our behalf, yes, it is a righteous thing to feel anger over that. Over the corruption in the world, the destruction that it brings, that's a righteous anger. It is a righteous thing to be angry at the abuse and the exploitation of other human beings who are made in the image of God. It's a righteous thing to be angry over injustice and things like that. 
But, and here's the key. Really, it's not a key. It's, it's just something I want to toss out there. How many times are those really the things that we're angry at? I mean, when was the last time you got angry over the abuse and the exploitation of a human? When was the last time you were angry over the destruction sin brings in a person's life? What was the last thing that you were angry over? Would it fall into this category? It would be something different, something that is not in and of itself a righteous anger. Well, regardless of what makes us angry, we cannot let our anger turn into sin. That's what we're warned against. Be angry and sin not. And don't hold a grudge. Right? If you let the sun go down on your wrath, it builds bitterness and becomes harder and harder to get rid of. Not only that, but... Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. That's connected to verse 26. When we are angry, and when we let the sun go down on our wrath, we give Satan a foothold in our lives. Now, foothold, and it's not in the King James doesn't use the term foothold, but other translations do. But the term that's used there in verse 27, it gives a place. It's a military term. If you ever watch like movies about World War One, they did a trench warfare, and they try to get a breach in the trench so that they can get down inside there. Right? When you do, what your goal is, your your goal is to get inside the trench, and you have two people roll in once you get up there, and they go as far as they can in either direction, killing anything that's there, and they have opened up this hole, and the goal then is for a bunch of other soldiers to pile in that hole. Now they're not just going to stay. In this spot right here. The goal is then to turn the corner and kill everything in the trench and take it as your own. When Satan gets a foothold in our lives through anger, he's not just going to stay in that one little spot. He doesn't come in to just live in this one little spot. He lives to come in and kill everything that's in there and take control of our lives. That's what he's after. And when we are angry, and when we let we sin in that anger, and when we hold that grudge, we give Him that place in our lives that He will use to still kill and destroy. Make no mistake, your anger and mine, it gives Satan a place to work in your life to destroy, to kill, to ruin, and to rupture. While our world thinks hissy fits are funny, and acceptable as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must not embrace that idea. That is a worldly mindset that that enables us to act without fear, without worry, without conviction, and give Satan a place to work and destroy in our lives. We must put off anger in all its different forms. But it's not enough to just say, don't get angry. We have to replace it with something else. First, we have to replace it with self-control. Now, self-control, if you've noticed, is not explicitly mentioned in this text, but it is implicitly taught. Right? Because in verse 26, we're told to be angry and sin not. And I like that. Because here's the reality. We're going to get angry. All of us. The kindest person in here, at some point is going to get angry. And you can't stop it. I can't at least. Maybe maybe you're better than me. I can't stop my anger. 
When I'm angry, it wells up within me. I feel it. And there's nothing, I mean, I can't just be like, don't be angry. Take deep breaths. Think happy thoughts. It's not how it works. But when the anger wells up and I'm tempted to act in sinful ways in that anger, what do I have to do? I have to not do it, right? I have to be angry and then sin not. But what does it take to sin not in that moment of anger? It takes self-control. We must learn to replace anger with self-control. Because anger without self-control will always lead us to sin. Always. Without self-control, we will always act in our anger in sinful ways. Anger without self-control is a part of the old life. And it must be replaced with self-control. But we also have to replace it with forgiveness. Look at verse 32. That all, I'm sorry, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We are also to forgive so that bitterness doesn't rise, right? Rather than, I think self-control refers to that explosive anger that comes up. But forgiveness refers to that anger when we're letting the sun go down on our wrath. I'm mad at Scott. I'm going to think on it for a few days. Again, let me ask you a question. I'm sure, I'm sure you've all been angry at someone and held on to it for a couple of days. Just holding on to it for a couple of days make it go away. Just dwelling on it as you're laying in your bed make it less bothersome. Just that being the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning, does it help? Do you just get more angry? I get more angry. And you may be more sanctified than I am, but I get more angry. The longer I think about it, the more I hold on to it, the angrier I get, the more justified I feel in my blackout rage and jumping up and down and acting crazy. So what do we have to do in those moments? Forgive. Why do we forgive? How do we forgive? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Oof. Man. That's a big call, right? I mean, that's a big deal. To forgive them as Christ has, for God has forgiven me through Christ. That's how we forgive, completely. Right? Forgiving isn't, I take it and I put it in my back pocket, and the next time something goes wrong and they're mad, I pull it out and go, and you did that too. That's not forgiving. Because that's not what God does, is it? And forgiving, it's not saying they didn't do anything wrong, because God doesn't say, okay, you're, you've not, you didn't really sin, you're okay. That's not what God does for us, is it? He forgives the sin because of what Christ has done. And that's how we forgive. We're not saying what they did was no big deal. We're not saying that what they did was great and that I'm just overreacting. What we say is, God forgave me because of Jesus. I'll forgive them because of what Jesus has done for me. And that is how we are meant to do. And those who are unwilling to forgive, they have not patterned their life after Christ, have they? What, what is what if one of the last statements of Christ from the cross? Father, get them! Oh, no. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's the example of Jesus. That's the example we're to emulate. We are to, rather than letting the sun go down on our wrath, we are to forgive as God has forgiven us because of what Christ has done. It's what we have to do to live like Jesus. 
And it will not happen accidentally. And it will not happen automatically. We must be intentional about replacing anger with self-control and forgiveness so that we can be like Jesus. Thirdly, replace covetousness with generosity. Right? Replace lies with truth, anger with self-control and forgiveness, covetousness with generosity. Right? Now notice in verse 28, let him who stole steal no more. Now, stealing is a much more complex problem in our day than it was in Paul's day. In Paul's day, typically very tangible items were stolen. Cattle, property, wives, things along those lines. One could hardly argue they had not stolen something when it was found in their possession. And while stuff like that does exist in our day, we also live in a time of incredible technology. People can steal credit cards, banking information, even identity. Stealing is just as much of a problem in our day as it was then. It's just what's stolen today is often very different than it was then. More to put off stealing, but I was thinking about it. Stealing, because, I mean, how many of you in here, raise your hand if you ever stole an identity. Look around, Michael. Take notes. Nobody. Right? When was the last time you stole somebody's car? When was the last time you stole somebody's bicycle? When was the last time you shoplifted at Walmart? I mean, it's not like, hopefully, hopefully, we're not just going around pocketing stuff that ain't ours. So there's got to be something more in that because not everybody steals. Not everybody gets angry. Most everybody lies. But not everybody steals. But I got to think, what's the... What's the deep thing behind stealing? Because I think stealing is just kind of the, the symptom and not the main problem. What is the, the deep thing, the root cause? Isn't it covetousness? You want what someone else has. So you, you take it. Right? You're, you, you want it to the point that you're not willing to work for it. You're not willing to wait for it. You desire it to the point that you will take what they have. And, and that would be the case where you're taking somebody's cows or you're stealing their identity. Or you're stealing their banking information. Covetousness is the root cause of it. So how do we overcome covetousness? How do we replace it? Well, we replace covetousness with generosity. But Scripture teaches that we are to work. Right? And that's kind of what he says here. Look, let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. That's how we replace covetousness. Right? Rather than steal from others, we get a job. We earn it for ourselves. And then we take what we have and we, we also give to others. Because According to Scripture, we're not just supposed to work to enrich ourselves. We're supposed to work so that we have something that we can give to those in need. Scripture teaches we hold earthly possessions lightly because we have great possessions in heaven. Look at what Paul said. Charge them that are rich in this world, they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come and may lay hold of eternal life. Now, according to Paul's definition of rich, the average American would be rich. And so we're not to trust in riches. We're not to think we're better than others because we have more than them. But in God. Now notice, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
there's a kind of a movement going around now that wants us to be ashamed to live in a prosperous nation and to have a lot of stuff. And I don't think that's because I find that in the Bible. I didn't choose to be born when I was born. I didn't choose to... I mean, God made me the way He made me in the time that He made me. There's no reason for us to be ashamed or sad or bothered by the fact that we live in a prosperous nation in a prosperous time. Now, that's, that's not a problem. We should enjoy the prosperity that God has blessed us with. However, it doesn't end with giving us all things richly to enjoy, does it? But they be, that they do good and be rich in good works, ready to distribute. Now, keep in mind, all of this passage is talking about money. So when it says they do good and rich in good works, that's talking about money. That's not saying they have a lot and they hoard it, but they mow somebody else's lawn. Right? This is saying, you, God has given you all things richly to enjoy. Now use that. And use it. And, and use what God has given you to do good. Use what God has given you to be rich in good works. Use what God has given you. Be ready to distribute. Be ready to, to give to help the needy. Give, get ready to be able to give to, to help advance the gospel in the world. And by doing so, you lay up in store a good foundation for the time to come. The world says, get all you can, ha- get all you can and keep all you get. Christianity says, sure, feel free to get all you can and then give away as much as you can to help others. Truly, the best test of whether or not we are covetous is on our attitude towards generosity and giving. Second Corinthians, Paul says, God loveth what? A cheerful giver. A cheerful giver is not covetous. A begrudging giver. An angry giver. A resentful giver. A <coughs> giver. Brings no pleasure to God. Because those attitudes reveal covetousness in the heart. That sort of mindset. It's not going to happen automatically. It doesn't happen accidentally. We must be intentional about replacing covetousness with generosity. So that we can live like Jesus. Replace corrupt speech with helpful speech. Replace lies with the truth. Anger with self-control and forgiveness. Covetousness with generosity. Corrupt speech with helpful speech. Notice verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Corrupt communication. It's a big, wide box. It would include cursing. It would include dirty jokes. It would include sexual talk. It would include gossip, talking bad about others, always having negative comments, constantly complaining, much, much more. I mean, it's just a big, broad category of all manner of negative speech. And we are told to let none of that proceed out of our mouth. Again, when we talk about speech as Christians, we often just talk about cussing. And we don't have time to look at it, but we can look at James about how we talk about others. Uh, you could look, I mean, just so much about what the Bible says about our language and how it's to be. Our, our language 
And it's not just enough to not cuss. It's not just enough to not tell dirty jokes. It's not just enough to not gossip. We have to replace that speech with something else. Right? It's not enough to say I'm not going to cuss anymore. But our speech is not to just not be bad, but to be actively good. Right? But rather, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good. To the use of edifying that may minister grace unto the hearers. Have you ever been that careful about the way you speak? Been so careful that it's not only that I'm not cussing and saying bad things, but I am consciously seeking to say good things. I am consciously seeking to say things that help and build up and not things that will tear down and hinder. How do we do that? And it does require effort on our part, and I've used this before, and you're all familiar with it, we ask ourselves to think before we speak. But is it, is it true? Is it true? Now, when we talk about communication, keep in mind, Facebook and Twitter didn't exist. But Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all of those things, that's a form of communication. So when we talk about let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth, it could also say, let no corrupt communication proceed from your fingertips. Right? But that which is good for the edifying, the building up of others. So, before we speak it, before we share it, is it true? Listen, we've got to be careful about that. Because when we lie, when we share something that's not true, when we say something that's not true, we're bearing false witness, and that's one of the big ten, that's a sin. And if we don't know if it's true, if we're not certain it's true, we probably shouldn't say it or we probably shouldn't share it. And again, we're in a political season, if you haven't noticed. And there is a a deluge of fake news. And there are so-called conservative sites sharing fake news about liberals. And there are so-called liberal sites sharing fake news about conservatives. Don't be a part of that. If you're not sure it's true, don't share it. Take some time and study it. Look it up. And if you're not willing to do that, just don't share it. Because when you share false information about someone, even if they're a Democrat, it is bearing false witness. It is a sin. Do not harm the witness of Christ and yourself by bearing false witness because you don't like this particular politician or party? Is it true? Is it helpful? I mean, does it, does it have to be said? Is it going to benefit them? Is it going to minister grace unto them? Is it going to edify them? Right? Or is it going to just make them feel bad? Is it going to help them in their life, their relationship with Christ, decisions they're making? Is it inspiring? And, and I think that's kind of, of course, I think that's needed for the acronym. But when I think about inspiring, my think is, what do I? What's the result I want from this? Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell Scott something. It's true. I think it's helpful. But what do I expect as the result? When I tell him this, how is he going to respond? What do I anticipate the response to be? Is it going to move him more closer to Christ? Is it going to help him in his marriage? Help him with his parenting? Help him in some way? Or is it just going to bring condemnation and shame to his life? Right? What, what is the end result of this? What do I expect to happen as a result? And if it's not going to bring positive, maybe don't say it. Is it necessary? Right? Does it have to be said? 
I promise you something. Let me make you an absolute promise. I don't make promises often. I will make you an ironclad promise guarantee. If you think something and you don't say it, your head will not explode. I promise you. I guarantee you. It will not happen just because you don't let it go from here to there or from here to there. Now, if I'm wrong, here's the other guarantee. If I'm wrong, at your funeral, I will admit that I was wrong in saying that and that you died because of my teaching. But I've been saying that for 17 years and I've yet to do that funeral yet. And I'm going to say it's because nobody's head's exploded, not because nobody's listening to me. You won't die. You won't have a stroke. Your head won't fall off if you don't say it. Is it necessary? Does it have to be said? And then is it kind? Now, kind doesn't mean... Kind, I think, is often the tone. But if, if I'm living in sin and Scott has to come and rebuke me for it, which the Bible says to do, that's not going to feel kind to me. It's still necessary. And there's a positive in what he's wanting for. It's helpful. It's true. So kind is going to come in the way that he says it. Right? How we say things matters. Proverbs says that a, a soft word turns away wrath. Have you ever noticed that how you say something can determine how people respond to it? Is it kind? Now, some would say, well, if I have to do all that before I speak, I would never talk. Here's the truth. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't. It might not be a bad idea for some of us to speak or do less. The world is is filled with corrupt communication. We do not need to be a people who add to it as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be like Jesus and not the world. And our communication is meant to be good for the use of edifying that it may minister to those who hear it. That doesn't happen automatically. That doesn't happen accidentally. We have to be intentional about replacing corrupt communication with helpful communication so that we can live like Jesus. And then the last one. Replace resisting the Spirit with following the Spirit. Replace lies with truth, anger with self-control and forgiveness, covetousness with generosity, corrupt speech with helpful speech, resisting the Spirit with following the Spirit. Look at verse 30. And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Paul reminds us that on the day that we were saved, the Holy Spirit came to live within us as a seal, as a sort of proof of purchase. Holy Spirit within us is proof that we are saved and He is God's guarantee that God will fulfill all of the promises that He has given to us. And since the Holy Spirit lives within us, we are not meant to grieve the Spirit. Now this is a Powerful thought, I think. The word for grieve, it means to pain, to offend, or to sadden. You ever thought about that? That you and I, we can say things or do things that would pain, offend, or sadden the Holy Spirit. Man, that's that's big, right? That's a big thing. We should think about that. We should be very intentional to be sure that we don't do that because when we do this, it diminishes our awareness of His presence in our life, 
It diminishes our ability to follow His leadership. And it diminishes His empowering of us to do the things that God wants us to do. How do we grieve the Spirit? I mean, what can we do that would bring sadness or pain or offend the Spirit of God? Well, I think anytime we do something God has said not to do, or we don't do something God has said to do, we would grieve the Spirit. But I would think everything we've talked about on this list specifically would fall into what it's talking about, about grieving the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is always working in us to lead us to do God's will, right? Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. But you cannot do the things that you would. The Holy Spirit is always leading us to do what God wants us to do. The Holy Spirit never leads us to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. So in light of that, the lust and the flesh are always working to get us to act and speak and do certain things. Who or what leads us to lie? Who or what leads us to act in anger? Who or what leads us to be bitter? Who or what leads us to have a rage fit? Who or what leads us to have a loud hissy fit to ensure everybody knows how mad we are? Who or what leads us to spread slander about another? Who or what leads us to act in a malicious way? Who or what leads us to be selfish? Who or what leads us to be covetous? Who or what leads us to cuss? Who or what leads us to tell dirty jokes? Who or what leads us to engage in sexual talk? Who or what leads us to gossip? Who or what leads us to talk bad about others? Who or what leads us to make negative comments constantly? Who or what leads us to constantly complain? Would those actions, again, things we've all talked about from this passage, would those things come from the leading of the Spirit or the leading of the flesh? Anytime we follow the Spirit or follow the flesh over the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit. And that grieving of the Spirit, it diminishes our awareness of His presence. It diminishes our ability to follow His leading and it diminishes His willingness to empower us. And as I was thinking about this, it's it's interesting. All of those things I just read, the way I read them, those are all socially acceptable. And it just goes to show that just because something is socially acceptable doesn't mean it's God acceptable. What What the culture commends and accepts cannot be our standard. If we want the Holy Spirit to lead us and to fill us, to empower us, then we'd better be careful not to grieve the Spirit. That won't happen automatically. It takes intentional effort on our parts. We must be intentional about replacing, resisting the Spirit with following the Spirit so that we can be like Jesus. I know time is gone. Let me just say, part of all that we've talked about today is that we can do all the things we've talked about today. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Because Jesus has saved us and we have been born again. You and I, we can. We can. Put off lying. And put on the truth. We can put off anger. And put on self-control and forgiveness. We can put off covetousness. And put on generosity. We can put off corrupt communication. 
and put on helpful communication. We can put off resisting the Spirit and put on following the Spirit. Let me close with a quote by a revivalist named Leonard Ravenhill. He said, Scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. If you don't have a new heart, a new mind, new passions, new love for Jesus, new hunger for the Word, a new desire to pray, and a new hope, you may have changed your morals, but you haven't experienced the new birth. The new birth is the most radical thing in the world. Everything that we talked about today, it begins by saying, you have not so learned Christ. When we know Jesus, He changes us. And at the very minimum, Jesus changes our desires. And we may struggle to put off the old and put on the new. But if there is no desire to put off the old and put on the new, your first need isn't to put off the old and put on the new. Your first need is to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. For truly, if there is no desire for righteousness and Christ-likeness in your life, there is no new birth. There is no Holy Spirit living within you. The Holy Spirit leads you to follow Jesus. If there is no compulsion, no leading, no desire to do the will of Christ as revealed in Scripture, it is not because you have a special key or a special deal with God. It is because the Spirit of the living God does not live within you and you are not born again. So if you look at what we've talked about today and you say, man, I'm trying it so hard. You just keep trying. You keep working. The Spirit of God will empower you to do it. If you look at that today and you say that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I have no desire or want to do that. My friend, your need today is to turn to Christ and be saved. Jesus will give us the desire to do these things. And where there is no desire for this, there is no Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you today.